Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. Welcome to the show. I'm Rebecca. Commonly known as Bloody Mary, the only surviving child of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, was the first queen regnant in English history. Today, Johanna Strong will show us another side of the much maligned queen. Johanna is a PhD candidate researching the legacy of Mary I and is also an amazing champion for Mary. So, without further ado, let's get to our chat. Joanna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm quite excited. I'm a, a big fan. Oh, you're so sweet. Well, let's kind of start from the beginning here then. Now, we know that Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon married in 1509. And in 1511, they had a son called Henry, Duke of Cornwall, who lived for only 52 days. And it wasn't until 1516 that Mary was born. Now, while she wasn't the longed-for son that Henry wanted, by all accounts, he adored her, right? Yes, he was, uh, as as he famously put it, his pearl of the world. Um, she was a beloved child. Um, he recognized kind of from, from early on that she was going to be a queen if he didn't have sons. And so she was raised not necessarily to be a queen in her own right, but was certainly raised as a princess and a future queen consort. And he spent a lot of money on her. He had a lot of of love for her, even if it's maybe not the father-daughter relationship we would think today is a good one. Um, he, he loved her deeply. And I think that he was really prepared for her kind of to, to take on the world as a consort um, but she certainly had a wonderful childhood uh, and and traveled in England with her parents, went to Ludlow in Wales as a de facto princess of Wales. And so she was really living the best life that had been imagined for her until the 1530s, maybe late 1520s, um, when I'm sure your listeners will know the infamous Anne Boleyn arrives on the scene and things start to go downhill for Mary after that. Do we have any idea how Mary felt about her half-brother, Henry Fitzroy? I don't actually know. Um, I would say she's very loving, which is surprising, towards Elizabeth. And she's very loving towards Edward VI, so her two half-siblings by Henry's subsequent wives. Um, but I think she and Fitzroy were almost put on a, on the same level to an extent. Um, there had been kind of rumors that maybe they were going to get married and solidify that spot on the throne, but Henry ultimately said, that's 
maybe let's not do that. That's a little incestuous. Um, but when Fitzroy became, he was given some dukedoms to kind of honor his status as, at that point, the king's only even though he's illegitimate, his only son. And at the same time, that's when Mary was given some of those higher titles. And when she was put in training, in a sense, in Wales. And so we see them almost at the same level, even though one is legitimate and one is illegitimate. Um, though, of course, by the 1530s, Mary is also illegitimate. Um, but Fitzroy dies kind of in the mid-1530s. So there's really only a brief gap where they're true equals. Um, but it, it certainly, even though I, I don't think they had a personal relationship, it certainly would have been someone, even in hushed whispers, that Mary would have known about. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. But you just mentioned something um, that made me curious. You mentioned Mary's higher titles. What titles did she have? So when she's born, she's obviously given the title of princess. And until kind of the, the 1520s, she is simply the daughter of the king and queen. Um, I say simply kind of compared to everyone else. She still is one of the highest ranks in the realm. Um, but in the 1520s, she is sent um, at a very young age, uh, relatively speaking for us, was sent to Wales in the same way that many, the same way that Arthur was sent when he was married to Catherine of Aragon, had been sent to Wales to practice being a king. Um, Mary was sent to Wales in that, that same position. She wasn't technically invested with the title Princess of Wales, um, but she does begin to be referred to as the Princess of Wales at this point. So she is even though she's not a son, even though she's in line but could be kind of jilted out of line very quickly by the birth of a son, she still has this title of, after the king and queen, she is the first person in the realm um, and, is, and is treated as such. So she was never officially given the title Princess of Wales, essentially because Henry VIII longed for a son who would then get that title. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah. That in, a, in an age where it's male primogeniture instead of absolute primogeniture, so whether it's a boy or a girl, the firstborn inherits, um, she could have had her title as Princess of Wales taken away uh, as soon as a boy was born. And so you don't really want to invest her with it. And then, you know, the next year potentially turn around and say, just kidding, please leave your nice castle <laughs> and come back and we'll marry you off to someone. Yeah, that would have been very unfair <laughs> to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, not really a fair trade. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Now, to be a princess generally meant that they that any marriage that she had would have been in alliance with another country. Who was Mary attached to during her father's reign? Yeah, so she has uh, a few betrothals. So Henry at first is trying to kind of court favor from France. And so he betrothes Mary, or I guess they, France and England both mutually decide um, that Mary will be betrothed to the French Dauphin, so the, uh, the French heir to the throne. And I'm just looking for the date here. Um, but that's when she's 
quite young. Um, so of course this wouldn't be a marriage that she would go to France and would, as we say, would consummate the marriage. It was simply a betrothal and a promise for the future. Um, so at this point she is betrothed to the French Dauphin and Mary is officially declared Henry VIII's heir kind of to, to make France happy and to say that, uh, that France will be getting a portion of England if Henry VIII dies without an heir. Um, but at this point, there's also the thought that Catherine is pregnant. And so, of course, not having ultrasounds like we do now, they have no idea until the child is born if it's a boy or a girl. And so this really was, in a sense, uh, a pawn in a game of a betrothal, because if Catherine had given birth successfully to a boy, that marriage would have meant kind of nothing. So that's quickly broken off. And Mary is then betrothed to Charles V in 1521. Um, for anyone who's kind of skipping ahead and going, I know that name, um, Charles V is actually the father of who Mary ends up marrying. Um, so we try not to think about that too hard before our brains <laughs> kind of implode with right. early modern families. Um, so that with that comes, again, the understanding that if Henry doesn't have a boy, that Mary will become queen. And so England will become part of the Holy Roman Empire to a certain degree. Um, but essentially what Henry is trying to get out of this is support against France, who is England's longtime enemy. And so that betrothal seems to be going really well. Um, Mary seems to be, you know, very cute as a, as a little kid in her betrothal and takes it very seriously. But then Charles V realizes that he needs money and he needs money quickly. And the fastest way to get money is to marry because a wife in, in royal terms would come with a dowry. So she basically is given money that then goes to the husband when she gets married. And because Mary in 1521 was six, she would not be getting married in, in real terms. It would be nothing more than an engagement for quite a while. And so that dowry wouldn't end up going to Charles. And so Charles breaks that and marries Isabella of Portugal instead. So Mary, once again, is without a fiance um, and she's betrothed again to France uh, it's suggested, but Henry eventually says, I'm not going to send my only heir outside of England. Like that just doesn't seem right for stability. Um, and so they said, well, can you send her long enough that she can consummate the marriage kind of officially? Um, we're not expecting her to get pregnant, but could she just come over for like a day? They get married, they do their thing, and then we can send her back. And Henry said, mm, no, thank you. And so that kind of brings us up until the late 1520s when, of course, Henry is looking for an annulment. And so Mary becomes less of a political player because Henry doesn't really want to use her for alliances because she and Catherine are very much on the downhill, as it were, um, and others are on the uphill. And so she has these two, maybe three betrothals to France and to the Holy Roman Empire. And those kind of come to nothing until years down the line 
when she has her own choice and when she can decide who she wants to marry. There's so much to cover when it comes to Mary. We have about 40 years to cover in such a short amount of time. So I'm going to kind of shift a little bit maybe to her reign. But what I would like to um, start with is I think I recently discovered that Mary had a love for fashion and gambling. Oh, yes. She was, as we we kindly put it, she was a party princess. Um, she loved clothes. She loved jewels. She loved gambling. Um, there are some records that she once gambled her dinner. Uh, and I, th- I think she lost that wager. Don't quote me on it. Um <laughs> But she she definitely gambled probably a lot more than was healthy for her. Um, but she definitely liked to enjoy herself. And I mean, during her reign, fair dues, because she had a great childhood and then had really a, a, a long rough patch. And then the first thing I would do as queen is kind of raid the closet and put on all the nice things that you haven't been able to wear for 20 years. Right, yeah. So one of the things, you know, I feel like there are some people who listen to the show who are maybe unfamiliar with her story. So I want to touch base a little bit on why it was such a mistake or seen as a mistake for Mary to wed Philip of Spain. Could you explain that to those who maybe don't know the story very well? Of course. So I think the most important thing to remember when we talk about their marriage is that Mary, at this point, she becomes queen in 1553 in July, after a bit of a kerfuffle, uh, Lady Jane Grey is on the throne for a bit, and then Mary says, I'm the queen, come on guys, and officially she's finally recognized, Um, and so she is a queen in her own right, and so she really can only marry a king, because that's, that's her only equal, and so there's this discussion when she's thinking about marriage of, well, she marries one of her subjects in the early modern world, the husband was the head of the wife. But if the wife is the queen and the husband is her subject, like where is the power balance in that? So really in her mind, her only choice is to marry a a prince or a king. And so Going back, I think, to her, to her childhood and to family loyalty to her mother's family, she kind of eyes up Philip II of Spain, who is given the title King of Spain later, um, but we, we know him as Philip II of Spain. And so she chooses him because he is her equal. Um, and so bearing that in mind, I think what a lot of people in Tudor England didn't like was that it was a woman marrying a husband. They didn't like that potentially because the husband was the head of the wife or seen as that, that when Mary got married, she potentially could hand her entire realm to a foreigner. And they were kind of terrified that if Mary died and didn't have children, that Philip would all of a sudden be the king of England by himself, and that England would just be kind of pulled into the realm of Spain. And so there was that fear of a foreign marriage. And then, especially in hindsight, people look at the marriage and are terrified of the what-ifs. So at the time, people just didn't like that he was a foreigner. They didn't like 
just the the gender roles association that he would be king and he potentially could tell Mary what to do. But then as we look back at it, even by Elizabeth's reign, it becomes that fear of what if she had had a child and what if that child had been a boy? So what happens if all of a sudden England has an heir and that heir is going to inherit England and Spain? And they figure, well, England's a tiny island. Like it's, it's always going to come second in that, in that realm if it's partnered with Spain. And so I think a lot of that comes, there's a general unease during Mary's reign, but then it, it kind of gets blown out of proportion once she dies um, because there, there has to be a scapegoat. And the easiest scapegoat is Philip II, uh, especially when he sends an armada. This is so funny because I'm, I'm listening to you say all of this stuff and realizing that maybe there was really no man who would have been accepted by her English subjects as a consort. Yeah, yeah. So there's obviously they don't want a foreigner, um, but then they also don't want an Englishman marrying her because then you get the political factions that happened. We see in the rise and fall of Anne Boleyn, in the rise and death of Jane Seymour, and less so with some of the later wives, but especially those two, I think, are the most well-known. You see the, the families that start trying to take power in England. And so instead of it being uh, an alliance between nations, a marriage with a subject begins to split your own realm because families will back their family member. And if they're backing their family member against the monarch, like it, it just is a, a weird political tension there. Mm. And so she can't, she can't risk kind of tearing her realm apart. And so, you know, it's, it's a tough decision either way. And I think she made the decision that was in her mind best and was best in the circumstance, but it's certainly not a circumstance that I think any of us would want to be in. Do you believe Mary I was a doomed monarch? Did she stand a chance being a Catholic in a Protestant England? It depends when we look, um, which I'm sure is, is always a fun answer. Um, I think if we're looking at 1553, she's definitely not a doomed monarch. Um, we have Lady Jane Grey or Queen Jane for the 13 days she was queen on the throne. And a lot of England goes hang on a second, I know that that's what Edward VI wrote in his will, but that wasn't passed by Parliament. And it just makes sense that the next person should be his sister, not his cousin. And so she certainly was not doomed in, in 1553. She has kind of a, a country behind her. And by 1558, she still has the country behind her, because we see in 1557-58 famines, and there is, as we can well understand today, there is uh, an influenza outbreak spreading through the country. Um, and what's interesting is that nobody really blames Mary for those. There are some really tough years, but nobody kind of says, you know, what if, what if we had Elizabeth? Would it be better? 
And so Mary, during her lifetime, I think was a really successful monarch um, and, and really had a steady path for England. I think where it comes to be the issue is exactly as you put it, when it becomes a Protestant country again, and we get Elizabeth I has to solidify her own spot on the throne. And so she needs to be able to differentiate herself from her Catholic predecessor. And so we see this building an anti-Catholic sentiment. And of course, Mary being a Catholic monarch gets lumped into that. And so she kind of is born again as a scapegoat and continues to be that. And I think as, as long as England is officially or unofficially, um, as long as it is Protestant, she is the outlier in a sense that kind of everyone pre-Henry VIII was a Catholic monarch, and that doesn't seem to ever be an issue. But the minute that there's the Reformation and there's the kind of quote-unquote correct choice of Protestantism, she, in a sense, chooses, in, in the current narrative, chooses the wrong side. And because England goes back to Protestantism, well, she, she is on the wrong side of that. And so I think during her reign, she's not doomed, um, but she is doomed the minute that Elizabeth I kind of turns around and goes, this is how we're going to do it here, and essentially puts it back into a more Protestant, more reformed mindset. With all that being said, Johanna, when did Bloody Mary, the term being used toward her, um, when did that come to be? So we have the the title Bloody Mary surprisingly doesn't actually appear until James the Seventh of Scotland, Second of England's reign in the 1680s. That's the first kind of recorded written use of the term Bloody Mary. But before that, we have John Fox in his Acts and Monuments, also known as the Book of Martyrs, talks about the bloody reign of Queen Mary. So she's already associated with bloodiness, even if she doesn't have that nickname yet. Um, and that continues through Elizabeth I's reign, that continues through the Stuarts until kind of the, the end of James II's reign. And we also have an association not just with Mary's bloody reign, but with her bloody counselors. And there is especially a bloody Bonner, which I think just works because of the, the alliteration. Um, but the term Bloody Mary as a moniker and as a nickname really only happens in, in the 1680s when there's another crisis, quote unquote, of monarchy and of Catholic monarchy when James II and Seventh has a Catholic son and England goes, hold on a second, no thank you. And they invite William III and Mary II, uh, in a very abridged description of that, invite them to come to England. And that's when we see this revilification of Mary happening. It's interesting because we, we know how many people, or roughly how many people were executed under the reign of her father, yet he's not called bloody. 
Do we know how many people were executed under her reign, or at least how many of those people were members of court? The estimates really vary, because I would say there are about 300. I know some have given the very precise 284 (laughs) um, are executed in her reign. But a lot of people then argue, well, what about the people who died in jail? Or what about the people who were in jail and only got freed because she had died? Um, So I think a, a lot of the time we see this I think it's it's just because how brief her reign was. Um, but of course, as you say, compared to Henry, 300 is, in the grand scheme, it's still a lot of people. Right. It's just a drop but in it, a hat. It's, exactly. It's, it's on par with what the rest of the tutors are doing. Um, and I think very few of them are members of the court. Um, I think the... The ones that come to mind the most when we talk about these executions are Cranmer, um, particularly because he's so well-known through Henry VIII's reign, and he's one of the the people behind her parents' divorce and annulment. And I think for the most part, people at the court kind of knew, you know, we we just have to get through this Um, the same way that... Mary kind of just disappeared during Edward VI reign and went, just let me have mass quietly in my own home. Thank you. Um, I think they just did the same. And so they're often not the biggest victims of this. It's people who kind of don't have the means to escape the country. So we have a lot of people during Mary's reign who exile themselves to the continent And so that's where John Knox goes. That's where Fox is. That's where all of the big names go because they don't want to live under Mary. And so I think the people who are executed are ones who who don't have the means to escape any other way. Um, So it's it's more of, as, as we would term them, the working class as opposed to the higher status court members. Thank you for clearing that up, because I, I've always thought it's unfair that she was called Bloody Mary. Yes, yes. There is a an article that is essentially challenging that, well, what about Bloody Bess? I think, what about Bloody Bess? Right. right. <laughs> but nobody wants to talk about that. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> well, I'm curious, what do you believe was the most ill-advised choice that Mary made during her reign? I think the biggest thing, definitely in hindsight, um, even though in the circumstance, it was really the only thing she could have been expected to do, I think the return to Catholicism and I think her marriage to Philip II are the two things that in hindsight have been seen as terrible choices. Um, Obviously, at the time, there really was no other choice. Um, everyone knew Mary wasn't just going to turn around and accept Edward VI's Protestant England. Um, and so I, I don't think kind of in her reign, it's ill-advised, but I think the consequences make it an ill-advised, um, decision, but she had no way of knowing that and had no way of knowing what 
her sister after her would do with that information. And we'll get to that shortly because I want to know first, on the flip side of this, what were some of the positive things that she accomplished during her short reign? Yeah, so she, I would say, is actually quite a successful queen. Um, During her reign, she essentially rebuilds the coinage. Um, So there's, during Henry VIII's reign, he's sometimes referred to as old copper nose because the coins were supposed to be made out of silver, um, but silver is expensive. So Henry ordered, I'll just make them out of copper and then just cover them in silver. So when you used it, the nose was slightly raised, and so the silver would rub off and you would have copper underneath, which would turn green. So he essentially debased the coinage because he couldn't pay the money that it took to produce the coins he couldn't make. And so when Mary comes to the throne, she goes, no, like if, if we have the equivalent of a 5P piece, that needs to be 5P. That's just how it's going to be. And so she rebuilds that and and brings that back onto a par that 5P will get you 5P worth of goods. Um, I think the other big thing that she does, which I know, especially today, I think we'll understand, is they had a massive outbreak of influenza in 1557-58. And the fact that, you know, that doesn't become a massive, you know, Spanish flu type incident, Mary handles that pretty well. And I think we've seen from you know, 2020, 2021, we've seen that how people handle difficult circumstances really makes or breaks them. And I think because we don't have massive uprisings complaining that lots of people are dying and there's nobody to work the fields, that she's handled that pretty well. Um, so I think that's one one of the positive things as well. And I, I think the biggest thing, and I'm going to steal Alexander Sampson's term for it, is that Mary essentially is the last European monarch of England. And she's the last one who looks to the continent to go, they have to be our ally. We can't just be a little insulated island. Um, and he terms her as the bloody Romaniac um, in in the nicest way. Um, but essentially, she's going, we can't cut ties to the continent. And I think that's that's one of the most interesting things is she has this foreign marriage. So she has this alliance that happens. She has a European continental husband. She very much is a product of continental Europe. And I think that's one of of the big strengths of her reign um, that, of course, then becomes a negative once the continental Catholic powers turn on England in the 1570s and 80s. And had she had a child and an heir, history would be so different than it is now. And I really want to touch base on this because I know the listeners want to know If there is evidence that any of these pregnancies that she had were real, or were they all phantom pregnancies? Have you found anything about this in your research? Yeah, so there 
are many trains of thought for this. Um, it's, I'll start, I guess, with a disclaimer that it's, it's very hard in hindsight to diagnose someone 500 years out. But the, the current thinking is that Mary likely was pregnant for her first pregnancy, which was announced in 1554. So in Tudor times, um, you kind of kept quiet about your pregnancy. Um, you would notice, much like today, you'd notice that you've missed a period, you know, you're, you've seen signs of pregnancy, but you wouldn't kind of officially announce it until what they termed the child quickened. So until the child moved in the womb, so you could feel it moving, that's when they would announce a pregnancy. And so Mary announces hers and she goes into the proper confinement and is, is ready to give birth to what she hopes will be a son. And it just never happens. And so there's, from what's been written about it in, in hindsight again, so it's written during Elizabeth's reign, a lot of people go, well, was she ever really pregnant? Like, how would she have known? Um, but her doctors at the time kind of are, are trying to convince her that she is in, in a good sense. Is they're saying, you know, your majesty, with all due respect, like these are all of the signs. You are pregnant. You just have to accept that. Even if you think that it's absolutely crazy because she's in her late 30s, which is not unheard of, but is an older pregnancy in Tudor England. And so she goes like, no way can this be true. And so finally, her doctors say, like, this is all of the medical evidence. You just have to accept this. And so I think she's gutted, understandably, when there isn't a child. Um, and we don't actually know what happens. Um, presumably, I, I would say it's likely a miscarriage. Um, but nobody writes about it. There is a miscarriage that is written about later in her reign, which, again, we don't have really contemporary accounts. So the accounts that we have are from later. And they say that, that Mary gave birth to a lump or a mole. Um, and they're trying to, to use that to kind of <clears throat> jab at Mary and say, you know, look at her. She can't even do what a woman down the street can do. Um, but that, in very sympathetic terms, sounds like a terrible miscarriage. And so I think she she very likely, the first one was a pregnancy and probably a miscarriage. There's certainly later evidence after her reign of a later miscarriage. But I think her final pregnancy is in, or suspected pregnancy is in 1558. So she dies in November of 1558. And so leading up to that, she has swelling in her abdomen. She has signs of pregnancy. And so she kind of announces quietly that there is another pregnancy. And that one, again, just kind of disappears because Mary becomes more and more ill. And so there's some thought because that she's showing signs of pregnancy, there's some thought that maybe she was suffering from uterine or, or ovarian cancer, because that would certainly stop 
kind of your, your cycle, it would stop you from feeling great. It would make you sick. You would swell like it, it makes sense. Um, and so there's some thought that that could have contributed to what she thought was a pregnancy. Um, but unfortunately without the evidence, um, that we have kind of, we know with Catherine of Aragon, there's evidence she was definitely pregnant and then the child was either stillborn or a miscarriage. And we don't have that definitive, you know, at 3.30 in the morning on November 3rd, Mary miscarried. <laughs> and so we have, we have to guess what happened, unfortunately. And that's the part I think that we all hate. We wish we had those concrete evidence, you know, something that said that for us so that we go, oh, yes, this did happen or this didn't happen. Um, yeah. And, and the saddest thing I think for Mary's pregnancies is that she had ordered all of the birth announcements to be drawn up. Mm. Um, and so like she, she was ready, she was ready to send out, you know, we've had a boy and those just quietly get put away because there is no child. And I think that like, that just hurts my heart. Right. Like I'm, I'm not a mom, but that hurts my heart that, you know, she's so excited about it. And all of a sudden it's not happening. I think we get the impression from Mary that she would have been a great mother. Yeah. She, she loved kids. Um, she was, especially given the circumstances, she doted on Elizabeth when they were together, when Elizabeth was a baby. Um, she was godmother to Edward the sixth. She I think just just had a real joy. And as she was dying, there is an account that says that she would come in and out of consciousness. And at one point when she was conscious, she turned to one of her ladies and told her about a dream where she had seen children dancing before her. Um, and you just think like that, this is someone who absolutely delights in children and I think, especially because she was married at such a, for Tudor England, a relatively late age for childbirth, like that, that would have been a little miracle baby. Um, and I think it would have been probably the most loved baby. And, and it never was. I want to shift gears a little bit and go back to what you had mentioned previously about the reign of Elizabeth I. How was Mary portrayed during the reign of her sister? It's not a great time for Mary. Um, Elizabeth, interestingly enough, starts out and uses Mary's coronation clothes. Um, so kind of takes takes those from her. She takes the example that Mary had given in Mary's own coronation. And Elizabeth goes, she's the only other queen to have been crowned a queen regnant to have been crowned in England, I guess I'll just do what she did. Um, so it starts out that, you know, Mary, Mary's providing a really great touchstone for Elizabeth on, on how to be queen. But then as Mary queen of Scots becomes more of a threat in Elizabeth, the first size, as there's a Catholic kind of growth around Mary queen of Scots that Elizabeth sees as a threat to herself and to Protestantism, we see 
Mary the First being used more and more as an example of what what England could be again. And it's used as you either can enjoy Elizabeth or you can go back to how it was in Mary's reign. And so we see this, especially in written work. Um, so we have Fox's Acts and Monuments, or his, his Book of Martyrs, as it is popularly called. And it's essentially a, a telling of persecution of Christians from the beginning of Christianity to his present day. But most of it is focused on Mary's reign. And there are as many woodcuts, so as many illustrations, excuse me, as many illustrations for Mary's reign as there are for the rest of Christianity combined. And so there's this real kind of push to make Mary the bad queen. And I think that grows when Elizabeth makes this proclamation and makes it a a legal requirement to have Fox's work in every cathedral church in England. So all of a sudden, this massive anti-Mary text, and when I mean massive, it's over a thousand pages, um, this all of a sudden is accessible to anyone who can read. And because it has woodcuts, it's accessible to anyone who just wants to look at the pictures. And, you know, a picture says a thousand words. Um, so this this image of Mary becomes a, a bloodier version of her. And it's because Elizabeth needs, and her regime, in a sense, also need to prove that Elizabeth and Protestantism are the best choice for England, that we need, you know, a strong queen who will stop the Catholic foreign powers. And Mary is the embodiment of Catholicism and is the embodiment in Elizabethan eyes of a foreigner because she's married a foreigner. Um, Her mother is Spanish. She's not English, as opposed to Elizabeth I, where both her parents are English. Um, So that grows. And I I think that really, in a sense, Fox has a lot to answer for, for how how, how Mary is perceived in Elizabeth's reign as as a a bloody figure of history and almost a a boogeyman, in a sense. If you don't behave, this is going to happen again. So smarten up. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking to us about Queen Mary I. I'd like to know, before we go, what would you like the listeners to take away from our conversation today? <sighs> the million-dollar million question. I think the biggest thing is that, you know, whether you agree with her policies or not, um, you know, I certainly would not stand behind a current monarch doing religious persecution, um, that Mary is very much a product of her day. And she is a a Renaissance queen. And even if we wouldn't accept that, that behavior today, that was entirely acceptable at the time. And so I guess the, the one takeaway is Mary is is not as bad as she has been portrayed um, and, and kind of take everything with a grain of salt 
about her and look at who's saying what about her and why. Because who's saying it in what circumstance really makes all the difference um, for how she is portrayed. And so, yeah, I, th I think it's time to put the, the Bloody Mary to rest and to start looking at her life as we do any other king or queen of England. And if you've enjoyed listening to our conversation today, Joanna has been kind enough to share her research with us on the next A Brief History, which will be out next week, which will focus a little bit more on, let's say, the end of Mary. Is that a fair statement? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's those last few months of her life. I can't wait to share that with everybody. So, Johanna, thank you so much again for being on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a joy. And that concludes this episode of the podcast. A special thank you to our newest patrons, Skylark88, Lou Emily, Deidre D, Charles R, Sarah A, and Deborah M. If you love the show and would feel so obliged to become a patron, I would be ever so grateful to you. For details, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudors Dynasty and click become a patron. Also, the holidays are near and now is the time to visit my merchandise shop. Go to TudorsDynasty.com and click shop in the menu. Up next on Ask the Expert with Steph, Medical Downfall of the Tudors with Sylvia Barbara Soberton. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudors Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudors Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudors Dynasty.